reading from Mark, 16, uh, Mark 15, verse 6. At the festival, Pilate used to, re Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for, for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to, to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why, what has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's re resident, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick, spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Over to uh, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will, you will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Thank you very much, Lee. Good morning, all. Uh, it's great to see you all here today. Um, I have a little confession to make just as I begin. Well, I have several confessions to make, but... I'll keep it brief. Was anyone else watching the cricket last night? I was um, multitasking, watching the cricket and packing boxes. Um, um, and my confession is I just, I, I am looking forward this week to COVID restrictions being relaxed around churches. After seeing 30,000 people at the SCG singing, chanting, no masks, all kinds of things. So um, I don't know if that's a, okay for or not to have, but anyway, there it is. Um, 
Folks, I want to welcome you here. My name is Raj. There's a number of visitors I can see here today. It's a delight for us to have you here. And um, my encouragement, as I said just to someone a moment ago, is <clears throat> um, whatever happens today, things can only go up because um, um, in a few weeks' time, I am finishing up at this church and moving to a different church. And that's a joke. It's okay. Um, and, and I think I said this last week, if, if you enjoy being with us today, well, that's the standard of this church. If you struggle being with us today, think that guy's leaving, it can only get better. So there you go. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be able to meet together today. We thank you for... <clears throat> your word to us, and we thank you, Father, that in your word, um, you speak to us. You tell us what you want for this world. You tell us the priorities that we should have, the priorities that you have. And so, Father, as we come today to this question, who was crucified, we pray that you would work very deeply. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most um, memorable calls that I received in the time I've been at this church, I think was in the year 2014. It was from Sally Bauer, who is our, um, she does many things now, but our accounts sort of person. And I remember at the time, I was in General Synod in Adelaide. Um, I was a representative of the Sydney Diocese in the national kind of, I'm not sure what to call it for reasons I will explain in a moment, um, um, association, let's put it like that. Anyway, Sally rang me and I saw it was her ringing me and she said to me, Raj, I don't know what to do. I said, why? She said, well, Raj, I've got $10,000 of bills to pay today and there's only $2,000 in the church bank account. What should I do? Now, um, you can imagine in my particular situation, I think that's the only time in 14 years I've ever got that kind of phone call, and so you can understand why I m remember that call. And um, I want to talk more about General Synod in a moment, but I just want to take this opportunity as I think back to General Synod at that time and that phone call, and, and uh, since that time, parish council and wardens and myself and staff, um, that led us to, to think about Vision Month and to think about the concept of pledging and other things. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank the many people across our church who give so generously. Um, we have never been in that position again, and so many people have cooperated to uh, enable that to happen. Now, I could say more, I won't say more about that particular issue, but I will say more about General Synod, because that's where I was in 2014. Um, that was my first exposure to what was happening in the National Anglican Church. I'd heard lots and lots of things. Many of you will have heard lots and lots of things. But for me, that was my first personal exposure. Talking with people, meeting with people, hearing different people's views... And I remember we were all put into different small groups and so I was in a small group with people from around the country in different um, um, cities and, and states and so on. And I remember, um, we, well, it was excellent we were able to have a, a conversation in which we respected one another's different thoughts and different ideas largely. And I remember one person in the process said, Raj, I see the Bible as having different gates for people to come to God. And he looked at me and he said, Raj, for you, Jesus is foundational. 
But for someone else, there is another gate to experience God's love. Now, he went on for some time and I asked questions. I was very keen to understand. Um, In the course of a conversation, someone else in the group said, uh, in the Bible, there is no room for the judgment of God, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. And my mind just started kind of going over. What did you say? What about passages like Hebrews chapter 9? that talk about everyone coming before the judgment seat of God? What about in Acts? What about in this place and the, and the Old Testament? The place that is so often caricatured for being all about God's wrath and judgment? Did you say that there is no room for the judgment of God? Yes. Now, I took the opportunity to learn to appreciate. And yet, friends, on this of the second of my last word series before I depart, um, this is the issue that I want to bring before us today. Because in, um, uh, in our world, and not just in our world, it's far, far closer to us than you might think is this kind of understanding or what I think of as selective understanding about God's word to us. I want to come to Mark's gospel today. Mark's gospel and the last words in Mark's gospel from chapter 15 and chapter 16, a remarkable ending which we'll come to in a few moments' time. These words, they take us to the heart of the cross and these words, they take us to the heart of the gospel. And I want to sort of dive into Mark chapter 15 and just um, paint a picture which some of you will know quite well. Others of of you will be very grateful for the opportunity to refresh. Others of you will be thinking, this is great, I've I've never been here before. Or I've heard bits and pieces. Chapter 15, we see Jesus, he's before Pontius Pilate. The reason he was before Pontius Pilate is because if someone was going to be convicted and put to death, that was the call of Pontius Pilate. And the Jewish leadership, they took Jesus to Pilate with the charge that this man claims to be the king of the Jews. For to Pilate, someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews, there is someone who is leading an uprising. There is someone who is leading an uprising that ultimately puts the Roman Empire at risk. And part of Pilate's role was to protect the Roman Empire, right? And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, first, what they do as they bring Jesus before Pilate, first they create false pretenses. And then what they do is they dob Jesus in. And in this graphic account, we're told what Pilate says to Jesus in verse 2, Mark chapter 15. Are you the king of the Jews? And the response of Jesus, it's fascinating. It is, you say so. I think the modern equivalent is, whatever you say, right? If you've ever said that to anyone, well, you don't actually agree with what they're saying. It's your way of just subtly kind of, you know, having a bit of a jab. Jesus says, you say so. 
He doesn't engage. And so they pile on this list of charges, subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, stirring up the people. And Pilate, verse 4, he then comes back to Jesus, who still doesn't engage. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But verse 5, Jesus still made no answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And Jesus knew, indeed, what had to happen. And we're led into the depth of Jesus' death as we are introduced to a custom that had developed over the years. And folks, the reason we're told this custom, it is not just incidental. The reason we're told this custom is because what we're going to see, it takes us to the very heart of what Jesus was about to do on the cross. The custom was for people to choose a prisoner to be released. And we're introduced to this man, Barabbas, who we're told in verse 7 was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. And whatever this rebellion or uprising was, I think it's fascinating. There's absolutely no question of Barabbas's guilt. No question at all. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. And I think as you read it in in detail and look at some of the other accounts, you can see Pilate's mind ticking over. He looked at Barabbas and he knew that this man Barabbas was guilty. Everyone knew that he was guilty. And he looked at Jesus. He had already questioned Jesus. And he knew that Jesus was innocent. And Pilate, he answered them. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews, for you. For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. He knew what was going on. In fact, Pilate says, I have examined this man in your presence and I find no basis for a charge against him. And so the picture that's unfolding for us here, friends, is going to take us right to the heart of the cross. The picture that's unfolding is this man, Jesus, who everyone knew was innocent. And we have Barabbas, the guilt of whom no one even questions. I think when Pilate started, he probably fancied his chances to use this custom to have the innocent man released. But you know, there's irony upon irony here, friends. It was the people's choice, not the Sanhedrin's. Right, the Jewish leadership, they brought Jesus to Pilate. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And so when... Pilate asked them again, we're now down in verse 12, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? 
It was the crowd. It was the people who said, crucify him. And Pilate, he pushed back and he said to them, why? What wrong has he done? But it was the people who shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. All they could do is shout even louder the more that Pilate tried to have the innocent Jesus released. It was the feast, was the argument. And during the feast, there was a custom. Whoever the people requested would be released. And so they just kept shouting, looking at Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, of course... Am I too sceptical to say, being a politician, he wanted to please the crowd? And so, the guilty Barabbas was released. And the innocent man, Jesus, was sent to be crucified. And my dear friends, here is the heart of what Jesus has done at the cross. The innocent Jesus and the guilty one, they swapped places. The innocent one was treated as the guilty one. He is then taken away to be mocked and flogged. And the reason the Gospels focus on this story, writing the lead up to Jesus' death, friends, is so that every single one of us would know that we are guilty like Barabbas. We might not have been involved in the particular uprising or rebellion that Barabbas was, but every single one of us, in our hearts, we have turned our back on God. We are guilty. We are the ones who deserve to be punished. That's why it was such a tragedy for that man in Adelaide. He couldn't see how much of a theme the judgment of God was running through the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because it is so foundational, it is so powerful for us having the opportunity to be released because of what Jesus has done. I find that interesting, you know, in each of the, the gospel accounts, there's actually not too much detail given to us about the flogging. We're told about, we're told that it happened. There's not too much detail, though, told about how. And similar with the crucifixion, there's not too much detail told to us about how or what. What we are told, though, is for Jesus flogging, all of the soldiers, they, they gathered together they weren't just going to flog him. They were going to mock him as much as they could for the short time that they had. He claimed to be the king of the Jews and so they dressed him up in a purple robe, which is the colour of royalty. 
a king has a crown. And so they gave him a crown of thorns. For a king, people fall on their knees and they pay homage to him. And so they fell on their knees before Jesus as he was tied up and he couldn't move. And they said, Hail the King of the Jews. And it was all about taking the mickey out of him. He probably still would have had blood dripping from him from the flogging that they had just given him. And when they had finished with him, then they took off the purple robe, they put his clothes on him, and then they led him out to be crucified. Forcing him to carry the cross he was going to be crucified with. And on that day, as is well known, there were three people who were crucified. There were two of Barabbas's sidekicks. And then in the middle was the innocent Jesus. And the insults, they came thick and fast as he was on the cross. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel... Come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were being crucified either side of him, even they came in on the act. He saved others. But he can't save himself. And Jesus' last words, they're recorded elsewhere. Anyone know the last words? Three words. It is finished. And that was the time, folks, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two to symbolise that now the people of the world can have direct access to God. Now the people of the world no longer need intermediaries to get to God, to be reconciled to God. It is Jesus' death on the cross that has paid that price. And the more you think about the cross, you see both the horror of what Jesus did, but you also see the beauty as you're able to reflect again and again and again that it should have been Barabbas who was put up there. It should have been the guilty one who was put up there. It should be me who was up there. But instead, it was the man who lowered himself from being part of the creation of the world even to come into this world and he lowered himself to become part of a creation, and he ended up dying on a cross in place of the guilty one. Now, folks, I could talk for a long time about that, and perhaps I should some... Well, someone else will. Well, I've still got a few. Anyway. But, you know, I want to skip to the last words in Mark's Gospel. They are absolutely fascinating. 
They are words where the resurrection is only briefly mentioned. And, well, I keep thinking, you know, we should talk more about the resurrection. I think it's, it is one of the stumbling blocks for Christians. I talked about General City in Adelaide questioning the judgment of God and questioning the purpose of the cross and the place of the cross. Well, for the last 20 or 30 years um, in the broader Christian world, the place of Jesus' resurrection has been questioned. But I want to focus on something in particular. Chapter 16, it is one of the most intriguing chapters of the Bible. Perhaps you notice um, in your particular translation that there is a, a significant note made at the end of verse 8. The note at the end of verse 8, and it varies depending on which translation you have, but it's something like some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts conclude with verse 8. Whose Bible says something like that? Well, it's true. The earliest and the most reliable manuscripts do indeed end with verse 8. Verse 8 says, They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Full stop. End. That's an odd place to end, isn't it? It's so puzzling that Mark's Gospel ends at verse 8 that the reason um, our translations then have from verse 9 to verse 20 because what happened is people all through the centuries couldn't make sense why does it end at verse 8? Why does it end with such strange words? And so what's happened over the centuries is people have come along and said, oh, there, there must be a section of a manuscript that we don't have and so they've, they've put on a more expected ending that draws the threads together. But friends, in doing that, I think it misses the power of the original intention. Chapter 16, it starts with the magnificent story of Mary um, um, and the other Mary and Salome entering the tomb and seeing someone in a white robe. They were alarmed. I forgive them for that. If I saw someone in a white robe and I expected to see someone dead, I would be alarmed too. He said words of great comfort. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> you say that to your children, right? When they're upset about it. Don't be upset. How does that go? <laughs> this person said, you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. And here's the interesting bit. Go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Folks, when, when you are able to process what's going on here, here is significant news. Jesus, he's not dead. Jesus, he is now alive. In fact, now the story, it's not over. Now the story is just about to begin. Go to Galilee in haste. Tell the disciples, tell Peter, tell everyone. The king of the Jews is the Messiah of the world. 
And the implication is, start to tell the world. What would you do? The one who came into the world, Jesus. In his life, you followed him around, you saw his healing, you saw his miracles, you heard his teaching. You were bewildered when he was crucified on the cross because you thought, here is someone who is going to change the world and now you've learned that he's been risen from the dead. Now you've learned he is alive. What would you do? Well, the last verse of Mark's Gospel, verse 8, tells us, they, those three women, went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, at one level, you kind of understand, right? But friends, at another level, once you understood, wouldn't you want to shout it from the rooftops? Or the modern day thing you do. So is there another picture? Sorry, Manoj, one before. Thank you. The modern day version of what you do. You know, you take a selfie and you put it on social media. It's your way when something special happens. You want the world to know. That's what you do. After your daughter teaches you how to take selfies, but that's another story. Now... The guilty can be made innocent. Now, we can have direct access to God. Now, we can have forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus, he has power over death. Now, Jesus still lives. And friends, this is the point of the very odd and unexpected ending to Mark's gospel. These women, they saw that Jesus had risen from the dead. What did they do? They were afraid they remained silent. But what will you do? Part of the reaction is, how can you keep this in? Part of the intent of it ending where it is, is to provoke us to take the life-changing message of Jesus' death in our place and then resurrection from the dead and take it to the world. Because here is the message by which people can be changed forever. And if I may say so, just on the very odd chance that that man from Adelaide is listening to this talk... You can't pick another gate that appeals to you to get to God. You just can't do it. John 14, verse 6, it puts it like this. It's coming up on the screen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is just not possible to come to God via another gate. Now, friends, I hope you see why 
I've chosen this for my second in this series. Because the cross of Jesus changes absolutely everything. Everything. The resurrection of Jesus, it means that he lives. And I think back to that time in Adelaide and um, other experiences I've had since, other interactions I've had, other conversations I've had, other things I've read. And while I am so thankful to have met people who have been so genuine and so loving and so sincere in what they think, I am so sad that now so many churches around the world, and I want to also say so many churches in Australia, churches that are far closer than we realise, have now wandered away from the gospel and the heart of the cross. A few years back, one of the other privileges I've had in my time at this church um, was the support and encouragement I had to go to a, a GAFCON or a few different GAFCON conferences and en route to one of them I was able to stop in and visit Zurich in Switzerland. Um, here is a picture of um, the major cathedral called the Grossmunster um, in Zurich. Who's been there? Pete? Kathy? Wonderful place to visit and yet I was so sad. Because I understand the history of the place. Here is the place where Zwingli, in the Reformation in the, in, in the early 1500s, he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to that city and through that city to the world in partnership with others. People were able to understand the cross. People were able to understand they could have forgiveness of sins. People were understand, able to understand they could have direct access to God. And he was the centre of operations, one of them. And yet you go there today and really what it is, is a tourist attraction. Located in the heart of the red light district of Zurich. And you see how churches who were once proclaiming the gospel, once were powerhouses for proclaiming the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus that enables forgiveness of sins, you see how over a period of time they can wander off. And they do wander off. Now, folks, I don't think at this church we are in danger of going, the technical term is liberal, wandering away. But I do wonder if perhaps the sharp edge for us, or at least we can learn from where others have begun the, the slide is the temptation to downgrade the priority of the cross. And sitting more loosely to parts of the Bible, perhaps where society has become out of kilter with what the Bible says. And we don't think of it in those terms. We don't put it in those terms. But the process that happens over a period of time, unwittingly, I think, is as simple as other good things take over. And when you look at it at a corporate level, these other good things that take over, they consume the energy, they consume the priority, they consume what we do, what we talk about. 
And this is the risk that I see, friends. Jesus healed people, right? Healing is a good thing, right? Physical healing. And yet when you look at the reason why he healed people, it was always to help people understand they could have forgiveness of their sins. The work he did in the physical realm, it was there as a blueprint for what could happen in the spiritual realm. And when, in fact, Jesus felt there was a danger for that agenda being usurped, he would withdraw. We do all kinds of good things at this church, and I really want to say they're good things. We should keep doing them. You should keep doing them. Each Christmas, toys and tucker. Over the years, I've seen the table often set up there or here or somewhere just expand and grow as people give all kinds of things to um, help those who are in need. We care for refugees. We help people in need. We help people with parenting. We care for issues around justice in this world. We, uh, people in other places and other countries where oppression is a real issue, they, they work to free the oppressed. The list of things goes on. They are all good things. They are good things that indeed flow from the cross of Jesus. And yet, folks, if we are not careful, they can take over from the priority of the cross. I've read many books for my thesis that a few years ago I had to read books about God's mission in the world. I just thought it was a given that God's mission in the world was to reach people with the message of the cross so that they can be forgiven. I just thought that was a given. And yet the vast majority of books that I read, I had to understand what, what had been written in that field to do what I was doing. The vast majority of books written about it didn't say that's God's mission in the world. The majority of books written in that field talk about God's mission in the world as being the very things I just listed. And you see, it's how we downgrade the priority of the cross. It is the cross that is how God reaches people with news of the death and resurrection that transforms. There's forgiveness. There's eternal life. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying the other things are bad things. I'm not saying you should stop the other things. What I am talking about is just remembering Jesus worked in the physical realm of healing in order to achieve his ultimate priority. Helping people know the forgiveness of their sins. It is the ultimate way to love someone. And yet I think it's also right, it's hard. It's why in our TAC mission statement, which is coming up on the screen, that we put in the word boldly. Serve our community boldly. To help us remain focused on the ultimate way that God is working in our world. And so, I want to exhort us.
you. To cling to the cross of Jesus and all that that means. It is the only cross that matters. And with that priority, keep serving this community boldly. By all means, serve it in good ways. We do lots of good things in the community. We're becoming, we have become increasingly known as a church, but so active in our community for all kinds of things. Deanne prayed for kids that play earlier. That's a, a wonderful thing. 40, 50 people were coming along late term four. Wonderful thing. And yet, friends, it's a stepping stone to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ. One way to think of church life, or let me put it like this, church life, if I can contrast it, has two options. Church life can look like or can feel like living on a cruise ship. Now, I know cruises aren't happening at the moment, but you see that picture on the left, a cruise ship. You know, you go on the ship and everything there is done for you. You're pampered, you're looked after. Anything you want, there is someone there who can provide it. The alternative is church life can be like living on a rescue boat. It's basic. It's not particularly comfortable. You race around from one thing to the next to the next. You don't exactly know what's going to happen next because you don't know where the next need is going to be. You see the difference? And I want to suggest to you, church life should not be like living on a cruise ship. Church life should be like a team, teams of people on rescue boats, working together to pluck people out of the perishing sea. And so, friends, I want to plead with you today to remember the centrality of the cross. In your own life, if, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that's where it starts. It's an incredible opportunity. And then working together to reach as many people as you can.